Find Your Faith with the Find Your Faith podcast. anyone who just loves to join me for a ramble on the Find Your Feet podcast, it's really, really good to be back again behind the microphone. Definitely with COVID-19 and also really the book launch as well, I feel like I've been on quite a whirlwind and as much as I would have loved to have been here more regularly, being creative, sharing thoughts and ideas with the world, it's definitely not been quite as simple as that. But uh, today is the first day sitting in the sunshine in my little studio, my yoga mat on the floor behind me, a long run in my legs and feeling like I can just have a moment of tranquility and bring sort of, I guess, the thoughts and creativity back to the microphone and to you all. So I really thank you for joining me again on this journey. This morning when I was on my run, I actually was finding myself in in an unusual headspace, which was actually doubting myself. I was that kid in primary school, in dance and drama, that would stand in the corner of the room and two-step and really hope that the teacher wouldn't pick me to demonstrate anything. Um, I've never felt very confident with verbalising things, with singing, with being in public and certainly not with dancing in public. So the idea of actually hosting a podcast has definitely pushed me to the limits and, and really challenged my definition of success, which is about a willingness to walk to the edge and to, to remain there until the job is done. Yeah, so this morning on my on my little, uh, on my, my longer run, it was pitch black. I had my head torch on. My fingers were freezing. I have terrible Raynards at the moment. But uh, I just sort of found myself thinking, like, is the podcast really my thing? Um, should I be pursuing other avenues? Should I be using my writing, for example, to, to share what I want to share with the world? Which is really just, I guess, encouragement. And, um, and hopefully moments of inspiration that will help other people, you, um, to find your feet. But I, I think I come back behind the microphone with a steely determination that even though this isn't the most natural pathway for me, it's an important one. Um, I believe that together we can connect with more and more people around Australia and further afield around the world and to help them to find their feet. So... Here I am, uh, a little nervous, um, maybe slightly out of sorts, but I'm being as open and vulnerable with you as I can. And um, and I thank you all, those people who continue to write and to share your thoughts on, on my writing and on the podcast. And particularly all to, the, to all the people who've actually uh, supported the book and its launch. It has been a wild ride. Um, I'm very grateful to my new publishers, Booktopia, who've not just picked up the new memoir called Finding My Feet, My Story, uh, but also my trail running guidebook. Um, They're now talking about printing thousands of copies because they see the demand that now sits out in the community. So thank you so much for supporting this. All right, today's conversation. It's another 
wild one. Um, and what do I mean by that? Well, today my guest is my mother. She's the only member of my immediate family who has not yet been behind the microphone. Although actually on that, I do probably need to get my husband Graham here. But I guess in thinking about the topics that I write about in the book, for those of you who aren't yet familiar with it, uh, I delve into the troubles that our family went through back in late 2005 um, with injury, with being raised by two parents who were quite different, one uh, very sort of almost tranquil, another my mum who is much more driven and growing up kind of between their two poles of influence. I also um, fell in so many holes. I you know, had a friendship with anorexia for a long time. I was striving for marathon success and striving to make it to the Olympics even. And my mum has been there by my side through all of that. She was also the one who said to me when I was really drifting around in about 2009, it was her who said to me, Han, I think find your feet is going to be the journey that you're going to follow. Whether or not I was led by her wise words or whether she had insight into me in the ways that I didn't have insight into myself at the time, she has been such an avid, avid supporter of the journey that I've been on. And she inspires me. You know, my mum has has an amazing, amazing uh, streak of generosity in her. And even when she is stretched to capacity, she still finds it in herself to be able to give more and more to us and to others around her. When you're in her friendship, she will be a loyal companion. And then what inspires me about her is just her ability to play hard and wild. Um, This is a woman who took up mountain biking in her later age. She took up running in her later age. She was a very elite swimmer at a young age and she still pursues that too. She's the mum that jumps on the e-bike, barrels down the hill at a million miles an hour, which I can't keep up with, heads off to the gym, takes herself for a run, then dives in the swimming pool, comes home, rests a bit, works in the garden, mows the lawns, makes a quilt all in the uh, space of a few hours, and then off to work to work in the emergency department as a medical practitioner at the end of already a long day. Yes, how does she do it? Look, I have no idea. Um, And that was kind of why I wanted to get her behind the microphone. I'm not going to tell you what to take away from the conversation because that's not my purpose to do that. But what I do um, hope that you hear in this is a woman who doesn't really take no for an answer. She's breaking down barriers. She's exploring her potential even as the days, minutes, years, seconds, whatever you want to count age by, um, continues to roll through. This is my mum. I really... I'm excited to have this conversation. I'm nervous too because within any rich tapestry of life there is also pain and sometimes it's really hard to hold that space for someone else. But here it is. This is my mom. Oh, but actually before I do, if you haven't yet got a copy of the book, uh, please jump across to my website, hannyalston.com.au. You can find my memoir page or the guidebook page if that one excites you even more. And, um, and follow the links through to Booktopia where you can purchase the book. But if you're not listening from Australia, you can find the book on Amazon and all of the international Amazon platforms. Or if you're an ebook reader, yeah, jump across to your favorite ebook platform and you'll also find it there too. 
if you have a moment, I'd, I'd love, love you to just leave a little review on whatever platform you've read or purchased the book through. Um, Booktopias is incredibly easy, so jump there. Also, if you're gearing up for your wild adventures as the COVID restrictions begin to lift, then um, Find Your Feet is always here for you. Uh, all of my podcast guests get a 20% discount at the checkout. So just put in the word podcast at checkout and you will receive your 20% discount. Alrighty, well and truly enough from me. Thank you for hearing me ramble. And um, here's the conversation with my ever beautiful mother, Dr. Julia Hutchinson. I guess like this conversation has been one that we've talked about for a long time. Yes. <laughs> we finally made it behind the behind the microphone and I think the bit that had been holding me back for quite a while of actually having the conversation was not really knowing hmm, how to frame it and like how to sort of feed it into the, the world and the lifestyle that we were living in at the moment. But now that you've finished the book, <laughs> it seems like a really cool time to to have you here and I guess the reason why I wanted to have both you and dad and I've also already had James on the my brother James on the podcast is that so many people kind of will read the book and like after a keynote will ask you know how are your folks and you know what are they up to now and I don't want to be the messenger and I sort of thought well the perfect way to have the messenger in the room is to bring you in behind the microphone with me and have a chat good <laughs> so here we good. are good that's <laughs> yeah. lovely so maybe um have you finished the book yet? Yeah, I finished the book, not last night, but the night before, sometime about 12.30 in the morning, after I got home from work. Well, that doesn't make me feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And as I said to you earlier, it was a bit of a rerun of my life as well, because our lives were so entwined in that period of time. But it was also seeing that period of time through a totally different set of eyes and finishing the book on a sense of real optimism about our relationship in the future mm. and how that's going to feel. Um, for me, the honesty with which you wrote the book feels not only amazing but humbling. Um, I don't think I could have done that about my life through that period, but it gives the door open to the future, which is just the most wonderful feeling for mm. me. It's that's cool because that's kind of the feeling I had when I finished writing. Like, I kind of, as I wrote the book, I never really knew where the ending was going to come, and part of that is because we all lead such a rich tapestry of a life, and it feels like every week there's something else popping up on the horizon yes. and I kind of thought oh gee oh no am I going to be writing this book forever but then when it finally came to the time to effectively write an ending it came out so naturally and it was such a really obvious full stop in the book um, but since writing it so many people have sort of asked me what it was like to sit down and write your story especially at such a young, effectively young age, 
for people writing autobiographies. And um, I said that the, probably the hardest bit about it was knowing that so many of the people that are involved in the story, because all our stories intertwine, they're still here, you know, and they're still living and thriving in their own lives. And so to bring up the past and also have to write about it in a way which is fair to me but fair to those involved in it mm. that was like a really complex equation um and it stumped me a couple of times and I wrote to my editor I think I called my editor and I have such a beautiful relationship now with her as well and um she's almost become like another Max or Jackie or you know really yeah. special person in my life and she just said to me just write it all down like just write it all down because there's the um, whole virtuous point of editing like later if you want to and in the end we didn't edit anything out of the book wow (laughs) it is as I wrote it and um and I guess like the way way I did that um is to always when you know there's obviously one or more people or sorry two or more people in a relationship but always to have the spotlight on me so you might be involved but if you, it was your story. It was my story, yeah. and yeah. you know, should you wish to tell yours, it's yours still to be told. Exactly. And part of why, kind of, we're here today, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Not that we're going to tell a story, because that would take a while. No, <laughs> and it doesn't need to be told because you've told it in a way that was true to what happened and honoured the events in a, I think, a really gentle but honest way. And always with a sense of your ultimate optimism shone through no matter what was being thrown at you. Um, Your time on crutches, you walking, hopping, whatever you would call, with your puppy on a lead up to the dairy, which is two kilometres uphill on your crutches to keep yourself out there you were never ever held back (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that was just wonderful yeah yeah it definitely um writing a book (laughs) always brings up the quirkiest memories at the quirkiest moments but um when I seeded the book out early on to a few people to what you would say be to read it and give you some feedback on it some of the feedback came back that I spent too long talking about our childhood but the thing was like you couldn't I didn't feel like I could skim over that because it's almost some of the richest parts of mm. of my life mm. and it, I think it if you don't understand the childhood you don't understand the people that you and I and everyone in the book have gone on to become like um, one of the only things I did edit in the book was I kept calling myself a wilder child and I ended up changing that a little bit because I'm now on you know have come to accept that I'm not a child anymore but I still feel that that impish childlike spirit that's in me and I think that can only come from growing up on an on a farm where you were allowed to run rampant and cause terror to most of the neighbors it was a pretty unique childhood and there was something about the Sandfly Valley and what goes on there now with the children there that was unusual when I look at how children live and grow up now you had so many freedoms and there was lots of structure but you just had this enormous enormous paddock to play in and that was just wonderful it was Mm. wonderful for everybody 
Yeah. Did you have a sense that that was the childhood James and I were going to grow up in or you wanted to raise us in that or was that sort of happen chance? It was more happen chance. Like we found the property. Simon had always loved gardening and farming. His parents were farmers. And we saw our property advertised as a little tiny ad I think three lines in a private sale and I don't think either of us slept for two days after we went to look at it and we just knew we had to have it it was so run down and so much work but that was really it wasn't that oh we need to buy this because we're going to have children and they're going to have an amazing time here it was oh we need to buy this property because we want this lifestyle and then it unfolded from there yeah mm. It's funny because that's sort of the journey Graham and I have been on in finding our house as well. Yes. And just standing, staring over the fence at this four-acre property, just going, oh, my God, you know, instant love affair. Yes. At yeah. which point we jumped straight in the car and came straight to Mum's place and said, how do we buy it? <laughs> um, Simon and I went on the mountain and we walked the next day and looked down towards, we were on the um, far side, on the southern side of the mountain, on the pipeline track, which nobody ever went on in those days. I think it was actually closed to the public with big signs, trespassers will be shot. Mm, so I take after somewhere. And we walked along there and we looked down on the Sandfly Valley and we just were so excited. Just, and yeah, 25 years spent there yeah. creating dreams. Yeah. Cubby houses. Lots cubby of cubby houses. houses. <laughs> and terrorising the neighbours. And one almighty <clears throat> huge garden. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, we, so we had a, what would you say it had been? Like a one acre vegetable garden? Probably an acre of vegetables. I said we could have fed the whole of Hobart. Yeah, we probably could have. Um, and that didn't count the orchards and the chickens and the ducks and the multiple cows that you milked multiple times a day. And, and the horse and the stables and the mud and the lanterns, yes. <laughs> Did you have, because you, so, you know, um, when we were throwing a very important birthday party for you a few years ago, James came up with the idea that we should have the theme was um, Feast to Remember Julia by, and everyone who was coming to the party had to bring their favourite food that they remember Julia by. And um, at the time, I remember saying to Graham, like, I'm actually really terrified that we're going to get you know, 10 different variants of muffins and, you know, 20 like loaves of bread because I think everyone associates you with making all these extraordinary things and that's part of your love language. But I'm kind of wondering how much of your, like, drive and determination and ability to, you know, make things on a whim and still do your exercise and still to go to work and still help everyone. Like, was it learned from the lifestyle on the farm or do you think it kind of goes earlier back than that to the way you were brought up by your mum and your dad? Mm, it probably goes earlier than the farm. Um, both my parents had a very strong work ethic. Um, my father used to leave home at seven in the morning and work till he dropped often as late as midnight at night. And I never ever remember him grizzling or complaining or expressing that he was hardly done by. He was a general surgeon in a hospital in Melbourne and he, he worked extraordinary hours, but my memory of him was always a generous energy towards others. 
and my mother was there to support him with four little children. And then she subsequently went back to work when we were in high school. Um, um, I then took up swimming, which we talked about and earlier, and that teaches you how to put yourself out there and organise your time and be energetic. And I loved, I loved my swimming. I had a coach who resembled your Max, who was there for me and encouraging. And I think you just learn um, to keep going and put your head down and tail up and grit in. Yeah. Yeah, nothing's really... I don't feel it changed a lot in that swimming environment. No. Particularly. No. Like, I think to the stories that you've told me about you know, riding your bike two kilometres each way to swim training and, you know, I know you had to also go through all the 10 sessions a week and long hours in the pool and drip your hair all the way to school and sit in school and go back and do it at the other end Do of it the all day. again, yeah. But it doesn't seem like it's changed a lot. Um, is that your perception of it now that you still swim and still watch the squads kind of? Uh, very much so. I I, I wish that they would um, not push kids quite so hard um, from such a young age because too many of them lose the love of it um, and, and stop doing it. However, having said that, being pushed at a young age, as long as you're enjoying it, sets up a lot of amazing lifestyle and, well, not so much lifestyle, but life lessons that you can take with you and a, and a base fitness for the rest of your life. So it's got its good side and it's got its bad side. But it's, I completely agree. Um, I have absolutely no regrets that I did swimming as a kid. It was given me the strength and the mental strength and the physical strength to pursue the life I have now. And without it, I doubt that I would do all that I do now. So, you know, thanks to my parents for dragging their bones out of bed at five o'clock in the morning. Um, rather begrudgingly <laughs> um, and with absolute no interest they they had no interest in swimming I don't think either of my parents could actually swim your father um, tells the best story about thinking that he he kind of was a pretty decent swimmer because he had a swimming yes. pool in the backyard and he sort of almost I think taught himself to swim and so he proudly got in um, under the sort of watchful eye of your swimming coach who promptly looked at him and thought that he looked like a drowning whale and yes. was best lying on the beach, <laughs> not in the water. It's priceless. <laughs> Only Grandpa could tell the story properly, but yeah. Yeah, I think s swimming stayed with me while well, I stopped swimming when I left when I before I left school because it was such an ordeal. To, we travelled into the city to school. It was an hour and a half on public transport, and we used to save the twenty cents for the bus trip at the end so we could buy an icy pole which we weren't supposed to do in school uniform at Caulfield Station on the way home I think the two bus trips there and back was about probably a good 40 minute walk each way so on top of swimming training on top of the train then we'd walk to school and then walk back to the station at the other end and then mum would pick me up and drop me back to the swimming pool so it was, it was a long day and I, I fizzled out by year 12, which probably enabled me to get into medicine. But um, Yeah, 
I, I agree though I sort of wish in some ways that the science behind the training had evolved mm, because yeah, yeah. I think you know I write quite openly about my semi experience and I was under the tuition of some fairly interesting sort of um experiments I guess in yeah. so many ways yeah. that were trying to almost be cutting edge but they'd stepped over the edge to being brutally cutting the edge yes and um yes and yet I kind of think back about that time and whilst it taught you all those great skills that you learned as well I just think that I was perpetually exhausted you know so when you go to stand on the blocks and try and race and perform at your best you constantly underperform and then you constantly aren't taught about why like why overtraining can lead to underperformance or why puberty or any of those kinds of experiences that you're going through or even stress that accumulates in the school environment how that can feed into performance in the water Um, and that's true for anyone in anything that we now know so much about the impacts of stress on your ability to perform and on you know the health and well-being of the human body and yet we're not I don't think we're teaching athletes this. Yeah. We sort of talk about recovery, but it's always pictured in a physical way, not in a holistic, mental, emotional, spiritual and physical way. Yeah. Um, and the other the other part of that, and you mentioned it, is, you know, you see these young girls who at 10, 11, 12, uh, every time they get in the water, they do a new best time and everybody's mm. so, so, so excited till they hit 13 and puberty really hits in and their physique changes and they just stop improving and then they get pushed harder and then they push themselves harder and it was certainly true for me I did my best times when I was about 13 mm, and same. Yeah. I think I was still doing the same times when I was 45 when I was doing master swimming um that there wasn't there wasn't that ownership of the fact that your body is going to change and it's the same for young men they have the advantage of getting taller and stronger which makes them faster, whereas women blossom out a bit, and that tends to slow them down um, until they event for a period time. till they eventually yeah. get through that. But there's no support during that period for young women. I think that was the thing is that um, I remember swimming a national senior qualifying when I was 12. Mm. You know, it's something that you're probably not expected to do until you're 15, 16, 17, and that was probably because I sprouted at a young age and then and and I think when I was a real tomboy in Larrikin on the farm I brought that fairly relaxed happy-go-lucky attitude to the pool which allowed me to perform but then once that expectation then hit you and also reaching a point then where I started to plateau but everyone around me started improving particularly the boys and I think it was having such high testosterone males all on growth curves which then steals the coaches focus on to them to them that um and it always felt like they were always in a hurry for us to keep improving and get there that you started to kind of feel like there was something wrong with you because you couldn't keep performing and i just think that therefore i have to train harder therefore i have to do this therefore i have to go to the gym and that's also ultimately counterproductive when you go over the top of the bell curve and your performance starts going off yeah because you as you say, exhausted, and you take that exhaustion into school. I mean, that's where I think all kids' sport needs to look really hard, but especially swimming. They they really push those young people really, really, really hard. Yeah, um, it's almost seen as a bit of a badge of honour 
because I mean I remember at school like we used to I used to have a bit of an e well a, a tomboyish ego and it was always like oh the rollers and the athletics people don't train as hard as us like That's it was right. it was like this badge of honor that we trained harder than everyone else and we did more hours and yet we didn't really perform any better than anyone else um I yeah I think the other challenge I saw and I think it's kind of interesting in the conversation because you were also a sprint freestyler um, I was yeah was that and I now kind of look at it and I think well how does that work because both genetically we can't sprint down the street to save ourselves and yet we can go out and run and play for hours and then so like how do you go from being a drop dead sprint freestyler in the pool to being you know a very accomplished adult endurance endurance athlete yes i don't think the physiology changed so i think i think it's a bit of a headset changes it's a headset change Mm. but i also think that it's so easy as a youngster to have a little glimmer of um success somewhere and then suddenly get oh oh, that must be what you know you're really good at and so we're going to channel you into that Mm. forever and a day Mm. and it sort of stops you from exploring all of the opportunities that were there and I think if I probably if I was the coach of um young sport I think I would try and keep the athletes as broad as possible and playing as much as possible in so many different fields for as long as you can because as they grow and as they evolve and as they get tougher mentally and spiritually and a greater sense of self I think you'd find that the, the athletes would settle out in a fairly different yeah, order. Yeah, one of the um, best, Australia's best backstrokers, male swimmers, was a man, I remember, very Welsh. tall. Matt yeah. Welsh. Matt, Matt Welsh? Yeah, he was super cute. He, um, he came to swimming when he was 19. I can't remember what sport he came off, but within two or three years he was a world champion. And it just goes to show that if you have a healthy body and a fit body and a fit mind... And then you channel your physique into the sport that you love. You can become a champion. Mm. And and yeah. I'm sure that that was like... It's a little bit true for your orienteering. Very much you know. so. Yeah. yeah. That was what I was going to say is like, and again, I write about it a lot, is that that sudden transition out of swimming, like I think I'd always said that I loved it. And I, I think I did in a funny... You probably loved the training if you're yeah. anything like me. That I just... didn't... Mm. although they pushed you harder than I got pushed (laughs) I used to sit in the car and count down the minutes until I had to get in the water like I loved I think it's nothing's changed I like I I feel so bad because I drove you there (laughs) (laughs) yeah but but like you said you love that feeling of growing and evolving and Mm. trying to find your potential yes and I was going to say it earlier is that one of the I think one of the um, dangers of being a young athlete or a parent raising a young athlete is raising the young athlete who's also a high achiever across the board. Yes. Because they're going to push themselves in school and they're going to push themselves at home and they're going to push... I think that they're always on a perpetual rush to get somewhere. And I think part of our role is parents and now for me coaches is to I guess sort of almost you don't want to dampen their spirits but almost somehow ground them a little I used to say to you and I don't know if you remember Hanny 
This is what you do for fun. This is your sport, darling. In an attempt to <laughs> let you have an out when you didn't feel you could keep doing it. Without, at the same time, um, taking away from the effort that you were putting in or belittling what you were doing. But to try and keep a perspective around school-age kids and sport. I mean, it's different once people become professional athletes and step up to the next level. But while you're at school and you're a rower or a runner or a basketball or whatever your chosen sport, it is your sport. And it's only one part of your growing up life. But uh, it can be, it can overtake everything and it shouldn't at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. I think the values that I would try to impart to young younger athletes these days is is to have a love of it have a love you've got to love it because a lot of what is love when you're that age yes you know it's almost lasting it's got to be fun it's It's just got to be be fun yeah so to be playfulness Mm. and i think the second one would be patience Mm. and that was never a word that i think was ever uttered ever no or athletics career for that matter um yeah. Whereas, yeah, you're right, like transitioning to orienteering and us all sort of bundling into the combi van, <clears throat> me cringing with embarrassment, which I now think it'd be like so freaking cool to turn up anywhere in a bright orange combi, combi van. van. Yeah, where is it? Blasting, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like it was just such a different environment. And I think the biggest change that I <clears throat> saw in orienteering was everyone just went because it was fun. Yes. And yeah. results were sort of. Yeah, I mean, you'd kind of go and look at the results board, but you were then straight off to play marsh rugby or, you know, run around. And and the the lovely line of Matt Dalziel, a wonderful <coughs> endurance runner and multi-sporter, he once said to you, and I remember him saying it, there's no egos in orienteering, mm-hmm. only deflated ones, <laughs> as he would come in last because his navigation skills didn't match, match his running skills and... That was the lovely thing about orienteering. You could be out there for an hour and think, oh, I'm doing this really well. And then that was the trigger mm-hmm. to just do 180 degrees in the wrong direction and your ego is completely smashed. And whereas a swimming race, you know, you dive in and you know where you're going and you're going to get to the other end and you may or may not win depending on the person next to you. Whereas orienteering, you you just had to keep concentrating you had to keep your ego under control. There was no point being fast. I many, many, many times ran off at great speed, A, in the wrong direction, B, not looking at the map, and C, continuing to run when I knew I was going in the wrong direction because my ego just kept driving me. You've got to keep running because you can't stop. And I look back on it now and just think, mm, my goodness. Yeah. Well, you weren't anywhere near as bad as Dad. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> How many days we sat in that camper van in some godforsaken sheep paddock in the backwaters of Tasmania in the rain, eating Mum's fruitcake, waiting for Dad to come in hours later. Poor Dad. But I think it is it. Like you could over intellectualize yes. it. You kind of yeah. had to learn to run with love. And with a and sense enjoy of, where you were, and yeah. a sense of mm. dedication, and and it and it was so different because when I was swimming, I would stand on those blocks and always know where I was going to finish in the field, depending yes. on who was in yes. the race. I was always the bridesmaid. 
I really, really won. So was I. I was always yeah. the bridesmaid. Mind you, the girl that beat me went on to the Olympics, so I have no shame. But <laughs> Mine didn't. <laughs> I'm still a bridesmaid. Um, but, yeah, but whereas orienteering, I think, um, the only time you could stand on a start line and know how you were going to go was if you'd done the work. Yes. And you brought discipline. And I, I remember going into the Junior World Titles in 2006 and... I knew there was no other outcome other than to win. Yes. And it wasn't coming from ego. It was coming from preparedness. Yeah. And bringing your absolute dedication to the to the cause. And when you did that, it would always reward you. When you brought an ego, yeah, well, yeah. we all know how that is. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that in 2006 when you stood on the start line. I was there. I was lucky enough to be there. Both the junior worlds and the senior worlds that year. And I also knew you were going to win. I just had this deep-seated belief on the long-distance race that you were going to win. And you didn't just win, you blitzed it. And just that connectedness of watching you train and watching your preparing for it. And also knowing, because I tried it, dabbled in it myself, how mentally prepared you had to be and I could watch that you were mentally prepared at that time mm. yeah I think the the thing that changed between 2005 where I was finished on the podium in the Third. long distance in Japan I was I got the bronze medal in Switzerland which was one of my world's worst races to be honest <laughs> I just ran like a total headless chicken the entire time I just had a good sprint finish in me but um I think was adversity yeah. Because going through what we went through in the end of 2005, and I'm not going to give it away, you have to buy the book, is, um, you know, was basically the feeling of completely losing your feet in the world. Yeah. And I think what that did was it, and, it, and it's been the exact same experience with what we've gone through now in COVID-19, is this feeling of when the carpet comes out from under your feet and you don't see it coming and you know that it wasn't of your own making that it grounds you right back to your core purpose and your core values Mm. and the core people that you love and and who will trust in you and um so after the end of 2005 it really just brought me home to this means so much to me this pursuit of for me it was winning world titles yeah and as a 19 year old that hasn't yet thought too far ahead in life like that was the shining light in my life and so it it blocks out all the noise around you and it just channels all of your focus straight on that one thing and that's why I say there was no other outcome possible for me at the junior worlds the senior worlds was completely different mm. um, that was more of a shock but I think through finding success at the junior worlds two weeks earlier that gave you confidence. The confidence to stand up. And an understanding yeah. of what it really takes to be a champion. And then I brought that to the senior titles and then I won again. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you, when I was young, and I, wouldn't, I shouldn't say thrown in the pool, but I kind of was. <laughs> no, as in you love swimming and we, I couldn't wait to come and join you there. But when I jumped in the pool and started out as an early athlete, did you think that... I, I'm just curious, like, had that in me to be a champion? or Yeah, I did. After I 
watched you swimming butterfly at the age of five with flippers on and by the age of seven I was doing master swimming at that stage and I was ranking in world top 10 in my time so I was no slouch of a swimmer and at seven you could put flippers on and beat me down the pool and I thought this kid has got amazing ability and but it was never like how are we going to nurture this or foster this I can remember taking you to Glenorchy pool to the I think they were called Jackson's Age things and you in lane eight with your little blue bathers and your cap and your little goggles and you got in and you swam your arms and legs off down the pool and you won. And I, I couldn't believe it. Like all these other little kids who were in swimming squads and you would just come straight off swimming lessons. You weren't in any squads or anything, but your coach or your swimming teacher had suggested that you go and have a go at it. And it was it was just extraordinary and from there we went to I think up to Devonport and you swam up there and you were out of age group because you were only seven and you were against eight-year-olds but you were in the race and it was just like wow I think I did come last didn't matter (laughs) (laughs) I think the challenge for me yeah I definitely have always been a personality that just love to challenge like you I think you and I are so so similar yeah Um, and always have been super close um but I think one of the challenges for me growing up between two very very polar opposite parents was you could see that in me and see that I always needed a challenge and wanted to chew on things and then I had my father who I think was probably a really good harmony because you were as eager as me to kind of go places and he was sort of almost like the overcautious creature in the room. And I remember him saying to us when we were heading off one day to a swimming competition, like, have fun and don't get wet. That's probably the only dad joke I ever remember in my entire childhood <laughs> as I was heading off to a swimming competition. But um, but it, I think that was a fairly hard pathway to navigate because he'd always say things to me like, you know, wouldn't wish success on anyone, you know, it's a, you know, it's dangerous, success is a dangerous thing, and um, I kind of always, I joke about it now with him, but it, like, saw him as a bit of a yogi, like a yoga-loving hippie, um, but I think it, it was quite a, it was quite a hard road to navigate, it got easier when we got to orienteering, because it suddenly was something I think he could understand, whereas the swimming mm. environment was so mm. foreign to him, for someone who loved to just have his hands and feet and mud on the farm, like it was a very glitzy environment, a swimming environment. And yeah, he certainly didn't understand it at all. And there was a parallel with my own parents who didn't understand it. I think Dad sent me to a swimming carnival with an eggnog that he put brandy in for me to drink before I swam. Bad <laughs> Which I don't actually recommend as a. Did you do PB that day? Great. I think yeah. I came last. Um, a great pre-race drink. No. Um, well, then, like, jumping forward, I guess, um, we, we've lived a lot of life, both of us. And I think the thing that connects us now is that we both still love to play ridiculously hard um, and love to also give back a lot to people. More than we take, I think, is always seems to be our kind of love language. So you went into medicine um, and still work 
as a doctor. Yeah. Mm. And you also took up some fairly extreme sports. And I'm not saying you're old, but I will say at an older age than most people, um, you took up or you went and did the Ladakh Tibetan Marathon. I was 52, I think. When you did that. And you took up mountain biking, which quickly evolved into road cycling. I remember you dabbling in triathlons, um, cycled touring, and then pursuing the running even more. And since then, you've come on like heaps of our running tours. Which, yeah. Trail running. So I guess like I'm kind of, I guess one of the reasons why I wanted to sit down today was because I think both you and I don't really like no for an answer and kind of believe that if you really want it you can do it so I'm kind of curious on your take on that and um I guess the the difference that you see when you go to work and you see people of the same age who have chronic health conditions and have chosen that lifestyle when you know that you can step out the door and still go and do all these things and explore new ones as well Mm. yeah I got into into running early I was still swimming and the family started orienteering and I would go and try and run and never being a runner I mean anybody can run really but I hadn't been a runner and I was in my mid-40s and I'd come home as stiff as stiff and I thought I really need to start running so I started trying to jog up to the dairy which fairly quickly helped my orienteering because I was fit I just had to get the muscles believing they could do it um from there um I just dabbled in that and always cycled a bit we used to cycle taking turns to cycle from Sandfly into the city as a way of getting to work um so I'm going to go one day and I'd go the next so that was a 24 kilometer journey over Over the the mountain mountain. yeah in the days when you didn't see another bike which was curious to what it is now um that was just because we always loved cycling and it was just something we did really um I then went my own way and was on my own and had the opportunities and the time to pursue the running in a different way I'd moved to Ferntree and had all those trails on my back doorstep and it was actually at the Melbourne Marathon where we went um, on a whim as you said in your book it was my father's 80th birthday and the marathon happened to be on that weekend I thought well if I'm flying to Melbourne I need something energetic to do to stave off sitting eating food and so I entered the half and you thought we'll blow that for a joke I'm going to enter the full um so we both ended up at the Melbourne Marathon and while we were there and I did my first half marathon um I saw the advertisement for the Ladakh Tibetan Marathon and a friend of mine had said if you ever do a marathon make sure you do it somewhere really interesting and as even as a kid I had an interest in Tibet and the mountains of the Himalaya and I'd been there in my 20s and I thought that's what I'm going to do and I just set that as a goal and that was just the most amazing experience and from there yeah I got into mountain biking my son challenged me that I would never be able to mountain bike and what on earth are you buying a mountain bike for mum which I'd done just really to navigate the icy roads to Ferntree and I thought hmm I'm going to learn to do this so I I did and I love it absolutely love it it's probably my favorite sport and if you haven't seen mum on a mountain bike it kind of is terrifyingly awesome because um 
you can go down anything. Like, no, I've got to keep two oh, wheels on the ground. I no, won't. No. I won't jump. I've. I um. I've seen too many people at work. The only the bad breaks are the people who leave the ground <laughs> and get air, as they call it. And oh. I'm not prepared to do that. Okay, one step below taking air, but you're fairly <laughs> frightening, like a weapon on a bike. Yeah, it's good fun. It, if you've never tried it, try it. It's it's a bushwalk on wheels, is how I see mountain biking. It's just marvelous. But do you ever get frustrated when people kind of it's almost sort of the interpretation of what you do is yeah but you're julia because i i get it a bit in my world is it's like yeah but you're honey like you know mm. you've you've always you can just do these things or you're a world champion therefore you can do it and i know you, yeah you've got to have you've got to have put in the hard yards i'm i'm lucky i've just had that opportunity as a child to get in the swimming pool um i was scared of water and my parents insisted i learned to swim and I learned how to be fit and through uni I used to ride and play squash and do other things I didn't swim and then we had this huge garden and I went back to swimming actually after I had back surgery because the surgeon said you really should swim and I thought well I yeah I can swim I better swim I've always managed to keep myself fit um, and that's always been really really important to me but it, it, it why, is something like, you have. Why is it important to you? What does it bring you? Uh, it gives you opportunities um, that you never look at something and think, I can't do that because I haven't got the physical capability. I mean, gradually as I get older, it's starting to become a bit more of a reality. But you, you've been fit and strong all your life. It's not something you now have to learn how to do. So in that regard, I feel blessed that I've had a life which has always put priority and I'm not quite sure why but I've always just felt that my fitness is really really important and as I get older it's even more important and I go to work and I see people with their diseases that start hitting in at 50s and 60s and their lifestyle diseases and diseases of lack of movement it doesn't matter what sort of movement you do, but you've got to move. You've got to move, be it dancing, be it walking, be it riding your bike, be it gardening, but you've got to move as you get older. And you move as when you're young because you're young and your body moves more easily, but as you get older you've got to you've got to invest in that movement and keep moving. And so many of the people I see at work um have lifestyle diseases either hypertension or diabetes or heart disease or they've fallen in their garden because they're just not strong enough to navigate a slope and they break their wrist or whatever it is and it's it's just so 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 important movement yeah. the the one thing there's two things that make a difference to your health as you get older and the first is and I say to patients if you only do one thing for your health, it's don't smoke. Um, because smoking just, as soon as you're a smoker, you just put yourself so far to the other side of the the curve that everything else, you may not may as well not bother going to the gym if you smoke. But the second thing, and the thing that we can all do, is exercise. It doesn't matter what diet you're on. You can be on the best diet in the world. 
But if you don't exercise, you won't be healthy. You can be normal body weight. You can eat a vegetarian diet and have low fat and high this and take proteins and do everything. But if you don't exercise, you will not be fit. So, um, and the number of people who come in, even those who look slim, when you strip them down and start examining them, they have got no muscles. And it's the muscles that are your engine for life. Mm. You have to have healthy, strong muscles. And there's only one way to get them, and that's to go out and do something. It doesn't matter what you do. And my line to patients has always been, it doesn't matter what exercise you do as long as you love it. And it's got to be sustainable. You've got to be able to keep wanting to do it and believing you can do it because you love doing it. I think that that mm. is probably one of the biggest differences between the Australian culture and, say, the European way of yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. Is that it is a way of life over there. It Movement is. is yeah. everything. You know, you walk everywhere, you ride everywhere, the weekend comes around, you take your picnic camper, you yes. walk up the mountains, like you're in the sound of music, you have your picnic, you walk home. You know, you put your bike on the train and you ride And home. even the Asian culture, really. I mean, perhaps <coughs> yeah, not as Japan. it gradually changes now with westernisation, but, you know, Asian people will walk to the train and get on the train and go to work. They, they don't get in their car. And I used to say in general practice, the fittest, the healthiest patients I saw were those who didn't drive. The ladies in their 60s and 70s who didn't own a car and walked to the bus. And when they got off the bus, they walked to the shop they didn't drive to hill street and park in the car park they walked to hill street and and, our greatest gift is our greatest curse and it's true from a national perspective is that we see ourselves as a sporting nation which is super cool yeah but it's spectators yeah spectators (laughs) or competitive yes and it also breeds um, going back to even the swimming environment or the athletics environment where you go to training, you do your training and then you switch off and you go back to life. Yeah. And even yeah. from the holistic sense of that, it was like you'll be an athlete, you'll be an athlete, you'll be an athlete and eventually you won't be an athlete and then you've got to learn how to be an adult. That was sort of how yes. we were taught. And I yes. write a lot about that challenge to break down that in my own head and actually um, just today was in discussions with a guy who was the founder of Crossing the Line um, Sport, which is an organisation which has established itself to help athletes progress through progress, after sport. Yeah. But I think I just see in, and I, it drives me, it's probably my, creates my single greatest purpose in what I do now is to help people to see exercise and running is my love language, so trail running is the love, um, as a way of life. And, yeah. and I love what you're saying about is like finding find what you love and don't just then see as do it for half an hour a day. It's like how can you embed that into the way you live, breathe and the excitement which you get out of bed within the morning. Because mm. um, mm. that's what I've – I think I've been so blessed to kind of grow up under you, next to you, alongside you because you've always kind of – both you and Dad have always had that like – the thing that got dad out of bed in the morning was just a love of the farm yeah and farming and um but it required farming. movement everything was yeah. about movement to yeah. the point where he 
nearly broke us, you know, mm. on those raining mm. adventures. Yes. The age of tanning gumboots um, in the pouring rain in the central highlands of Tasmania and walking the overland track straight afterwards in three days in gumboots. And um, I kind of laugh with him now and say, yeah, I think you could have made us or broken us. Yes. I'm glad it was the former. I, I, I used to say, Simon, don't push them too hard. We don't want to ruin They've got to be able to love this. Thankfully, we we all did. Yeah, Yeah. we all did. Yeah. But I then, because I sort of asked you when you were were asking me like where this conversation might lead today and I think one of the questions I had for you was um, do you see yourself as a competitive person? Because, again, the Australian mentality has, has definitely really embraced competition and you have at times... Mm. being competitive mm. but do you think that um you've needed competitions to kind of keep the fire going or like oh. what is it that keeps the excitement alive for you? competition definitely has no place now um it when i was doing master swimming it helped to set goals and it made you connect with those people of your age and stage in life and I traveled to only around Australia I don't think I ever went internationally with swimming I went to some master swimming events with other people and it was fun but the actual standing on the blocks and looking at my toes I'd often think what on earth am I doing um, and my dabbling in triathlons was usually just riding a clapped out old bike with a kids pannier rack on the back or something um and and wondering why people needed that degree of competition to push themselves certainly now i look almost with a little bit of horror at the ultra 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 long distance races that people are testing them pitting themselves against and wonder is that sustainable for them as an individual and for the sport? Because I think there's only so much that people can tolerate of that degree of punishment. But stepping back from that, I'm I'm competitive with myself. If I if there's a hill and I see my friend go up it, as I often do ahead of me on a bike, I'm grit determined to push myself to the same point that she gets to um so yes i am competitive in that inner self of trying to succeed on whatever little goal it is or i want my garden to look really nice then in a sense it's a bit of a competition with myself can i keep doing this so yes and no i am competitive but i'm equally i'm i'm not yeah Mm, i'm a bit the same but I kind of, I, I have, as you know, fluctuated between not, yeah, no loving competition and then flipping out and going, competition, yeah, yeah. and then flipping back in and going, hmm. It has its place, for I sure. I think it does, but yeah. I, I wanted to challenge the, the horror on the ultra, ultra, ultra scene. I, I kind of get it because that's where my flipping and toing and from yeah. has come from. But, and I know that at times both you and dad have looked at me and just gone dear god what's she up to now kind of thing um 
you know, we've got to the point where we don't even tell Graham's parents where we're off to until <laughs> after we've done it. Oh, uh, it's it's more just worrying about what running a hundred miles or a hundred kilometres will will do to that person's physiology long term. I don't term. think yeah. it's necessarily. I, I get it if it becomes um, needing needing it for the next fix, almost like yeah. an addict yeah. style. Yeah. But I I don't have a problem with what we do. I have a I often have a challenge or a problem with how we do it. Yeah. So you see, um, you know, I see people that I, I used to run with who were adults training with us, say, on the athletics track you know, 20 years ago who were still doing the exact same training on the athletics track to the exact same intensity. Mm. And not that that in itself is a problem. But just the fact that I know in my heart, because I've been in that environment, that there is never a stop. There's never a pause. There's never an easy week. It's the same intensity every week. And the goals keep getting bigger and meatier or faster. Yeah, and what, is, and and what I, is the goal? Yeah. And I think yeah. it's more just like, yes, I agree, the body can't keep tolerating a high load of stress mm. because... It doesn't then take also into consideration what's happening in our lives around us, and maybe that's one of the virtues of going through adversity, is that you learn, <laughs> you learn that knife edge and that the body isn't a machine; it can't yeah, just keep getting yeah. pushed through and through. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've said it to you before that there's an interesting divide developing in society of those who I see at work, who majority of them do nothing and you say well what did you do yesterday as a way of putting their complaint that they've come with into the lifestyle perspective and they'll say oh nothing really I just sat on the couch and watched television to those who are training for yet another 100 miler or 200 miler or 300 miler there's a there's a divide where there's one group who doesn't do anything and then there's another group where the marathon's no longer enough it's got to become more and more and more and more and more and i i worry that that group in some ways is doing their themselves as much harm as the group doing nothing that you can push your body so hard that it puts divides in your physical health and also in your family emotional and psychological health um where it can just become such a preoccupation that you know your relationship with your children goes or your relationship with your spouse goes and yeah I just I, I look on really out of with a, a sort of curiosity not quite knowing what I think because part of it fascinates me I'd, I'd love to think I could go and run 100 miles but I know I couldn't um, so there's part of it may be driven by a sense of awe or envy or wonderment but there's also this oh what would that what what is that doing to these people and their lives and their ability to cope with I think life because the ultra scene is relatively new, new. so I dabbled yeah. in it when I was yeah. 17 18 I can't remember how old I was on the overland track um 82k ultra <clears throat> and we really hadn't heard about anything no. happening like that at that time it was kind of you were definitely a what do you call them? Like an out, not an outsider, an outlier. Outlier. When you mm. did that. And so the approach that Australia has always had because we've had this sort of nation of sporting is a fairly straight line approach. Mm. Um, again, it happened in swimming, it happened later in the marathon that you start your 
bid for preparation at X and then you straight line in your development towards the race till you reach Y, till you reach Mm -hmm. Z and finally you get to the start line. And I think the fact that we're trying to take that same approach into these events that are extraordinarily taxing, not just on the physical body, but I think on the emotional Emotional and spiritual spiritual body. body, I think that's where the risk has come from. Whereas the Europeans who are kind of been playing in the, they've been playing in this environment for oh so long yeah you know and when i was out running in the pyrenees i saw other athletes out running in the pyrenees because it it's just what they do yeah you know and um and so it's quite different and i was talking on another podcast just the other night about again it comes back to patience that it's fine it's not what you do i think it's the thought process is how you do it and for you and I, we've been playing our whole lives. So to suddenly go out and run the Ladakh Tibetan Marathon or mountain bike for six days at Derby really hard, it's not as big a jump on the body as it would be for someone exactly. who's just come yeah. into this journey. Yeah, um, yeah. I suppose my concern just looking at it is it's such a new sport and enough's never enough that mm. you know once upon a time it was a triathlon and then it became two tri- two Olympic distance triathlons back to back. And then we got the, what, what are they the called? Iron the Ironman. <clears throat> and now there's even double Ironmans. And triple Ironmans. Triple Ironmans. And I, I just sort of think, uh, is this uh, first world problem madness? that, Or is it that human society has so lost their roots and they're grappling back to try and challenge themselves with some physical challenge where you know even a caveman day you had to go and chase down your food or you had to grow it or you had to no, I, think uh, I just I wonder what drives it and it's just my own curiosity and I think looking it, at it it's yeah. interesting because we've both faced even recent time situations where we haven't been able to pursue as hard what we love physically so yeah. I broke my foot and then you had a like the little heart, heart scare thing. yeah and I remember when both of us had those times we we felt quite lost and despondent. I remember it brought a yeah. lot of fear up for you yeah. and it, as yeah. it did for me. And so I think it comes back to the fact that when you are used to being that fit and you have that one day out where it all comes together, mm. it's such an intoxicating feeling yes, of for joy sure. For sure. and the sense yeah. of like, this is who I am, this is who I'm meant to mm. be. And so I... I can see why, why we people keep, do it. or why yeah. we all keep on that journey. So I think the challenge that we have as hopefully role models in our little bubble is to challenge the way we go about it. Um, yes. Yeah. And I agree that I also think because curiosity is at the base then of all of that, like how far can I go or where can I go with this, to be curious to think outside of the box. Yes. That yeah. outside of the competition or outside of this is where I always go at Christmas time for my holiday. You know, it's like, where else can this journey take you? Take you, yeah. Because that keeps you excited. Yeah. <laughs> All that came from talking about whether or not we were competitive. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, I think there's elements of... Us playing Scrabble at Coles Bay. Oh, yeah. That we're both... We're very competitive. competitive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which probably is why 
98% of our lives we've had an amazing relationship and probably 2% of the time we've clashed and I think it would have been in those 2% just because we are competitive even with each other. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a, a fine line as a parent of supporting and that was one of your, your queries to me. How would, what advice would you give to other parents? There's a fine line between supporting your child as an athlete and owning their athleticism. And, yeah, I think that was the times when we clashed was when you felt like I was trying to own what you were doing. But you, you're not. You're trying to support. And you're trying, and it's true with all walks of life with your child you you want to watch them grow up and mature and be independent but at the same time you want to keep them safe and there's this balancing act of walking the wire between joining in and having fun and being enthusiastic for them and being seen to be not interfering is too strong a word but owning what they do um yeah and a tricky I, one. honestly i mean i remember my brother saying god forbid anyone who falls in love with you because i'm i'm a strong personality and i hate to be told what to do (laughs) um i would ask for help with my homework and then when you go to help me i would get really grumpy that you were trying to help me but so i kind of i think i was always going to be a complex character to help nurture through it because i really did have to make all the mistakes and i've done it in business i look at my business journey now never having set out to be in business and kind of right about now wishing I wasn't in business. But um, like, I guess I look at how much money, I would say it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars of mistakes that I have made over this last sort of 10 years of my life. But I kind of, I couldn't have it any other way. No. And like, that, that's life's journey, isn't it? Yeah. And that's your personality has always been to be independent and to... And always to know yeah. that, I guess, at the end of the day, then the mess is yours and, and mm. it's your responsibility to climb out of it. And I think that's one of the greatest things I learned from you both was a sense of um, independence and owning that, owning whatever you set out to do. <laughs> Um, and I think the other thing I learned from you both, and I write very strongly about this in the book, is the importance of parental trust. Yes. It's probably why I've never been drunk and I've never done drugs and I've stayed relatively on the straighter and narrower in that sense was just that I always kind of knew somehow deep down that that trust was going to be really important and it ended up being incredibly important when you mm. were trusting to put me on a plane at 16 to go to... Finland is a small yeah, bond, yeah. single traveling female to Finland and Estonia, and you know, and I, like so. For me, I think one of the other values that I've learned, and I've taken it right through my whole life, is is not just the whole playfulness and patience, but I think it's been trust and the importance mm. of that. Mm. And also, also believing in what your child does as being their journey and their story and totally valid so Hanny's orienteering for example just uh, just believing in where that was going as a parent um, it's not owning it it's not 
taking the shoes off her and taking the glory yourself but it's being there next to them and supporting that journey with what my lovely colleague Jenny said broad shoulders to carry the burden but not to smother them it's it's got to be still your journey and it was you were in Finland and Estonia and well, I think part, partly that's for the well-being of us as as the child and as the athlete but it's also partly to maintain your own sense of independence as a parent yeah because it would be and you and I see it and I, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of parents now in a coaching capacity who and I, I wonder how much of this drives them in the journeys that we were talking about earlier about trying running or trying ultras and ending up on this journey of more and more and more is because they're trying to refine their feet you know as a as an independent adult and yes after yeah. having kids and sort of I guess in some ways losing a bit of a sense of self well you, you lose yeah you lose you lose you change yourself because you yourself gets shared with a the person the father of your child in my situation the mother if you're talking about the man um but also with the child because the child needs you but they don't want to be swallowed by you they want to still feel like they're dancing their own dance and but they've got to know that you're there to to just be there and be able to bear it when things don't go, work out. Or and I I thank my dear friend Jenny for that. She she had four girls and I watched her. They were older than you and James and I watched her journey and carrying their burdens and and learnt by watching her a way of doing it of still letting the child grow but being there and just and hanging grow on. but also fall in their own fall in their own holes, holes and pick and themselves up out of their holes but being the helping hand to pick them up yeah yeah and i think that's why one of the reasons for wanting to write the book is because i mean I, we all fell in multiple holes. Mm. Multiple we all times. fell in our own holes. Graham and yeah. I still fall in holes, and we still find ourselves saying, "Well, I won't do that again." Mm. And then we fall in the same hole again. Mm. But eventually, you learn. And I wanted to showcase. I think this is one of the benefits that I've had of working with Alice, who's been one of my amazing role models in recent times, and she's a coach. She really highlighted the importance of um, support networks Mm. because as someone who's stubbornly independent, I think I'd had a bit of a misconception about how independent I was on that journey and it wasn't to working with her and that sort of realisation of the importance of support networks and then writing about the fact that there were amazing support networks around the world was, um, yeah, just to really bring to life that it's so important that yeah that we support aspiring individuals mm. of any age in any age or in any stage yeah, yeah. and so yeah. you've put a huge support network around you now like you've just got back from a massage yeah <laughs> so like as someone that i guess i have a couple of questions before you finish up one is like who's important in your support network now to kind of keep you playing wilder um well Certainly you are. <laughs> you 
have provided me with so many opportunities and so much knowledge um, reciprocating it. Um, my wonderful, wonderful, wonderful trips overseas and the knowledge that you've passed on about how to do it sustainably. Every time I run up a hill now, I run with little steps and try and run on eggshells, not very successfully. But um, I always get up the hills and without that knowledge, then I wouldn't. Then I have my lovely son James up the road and I've still got a very loving relationship with Simon and his new wife, Janelle, for which I'm very, very grateful. Um, and then I've got the most amazing circle of friends around me, my six foot two friend, Isa, who I trail behind up every hill around Hobart and um, go down in front of her down every steep slope and we have so much fun and stop and eat muffins halfway around whatever crazy journey and uh, I thank her for the friendship and then there's just a host of other people neighbors and friends and but you have to put you have to put energy into your friendships they don't just continue if you don't give out to your friends and friends have always been important to me um well they're the family you choose. they're the family you choose and I'm, I'm lucky to have some amazing friends who I share lots of activities but then you also you also um I think you've taught me the importance of uh giving back to yourself if you want to keep putting out the energy so you know you will have massages and you've got physios that you'll go mm. and see if you need to and you know you um, work on self I know continually and explore how you can have stronger relationships like you have people in your world who help you on a holistic level yeah you have to <clears throat> um, I now live on my own which is has its good and its bad when you live on your own you do whatever you want whenever you want to really um, but the downside is you don't have anybody to help you make decisions until you reach out to somebody there's not that immediate person um, but but do you feel as the support networks have got stronger you've been able to play harder would you say oh, yeah. that equation is oh, yeah. true yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah playing harder in a physical sense and more recently I've taken up piano again and uh, that was something I did as a kid and then dabbled with a little bit in my early years of my marriage and when you guys were learning instruments but that has been a wonderful um, self-help thing of um, learning how to do something not quite from scratch because I was always a reasonable pianist but learning how to do something that humbles you but also stretches your intellect challenges you and I'm fortunate to have found a a young teacher who who inspires me to and supports me in the belief that I can improve and yeah. and and that at 63 is really exciting that you can do something new-ish for me um yeah and something that is intellectually challenging and I fun it's just like I've come up against the psychology that it when you reach a certain age you're no longer an athlete or you're no longer a musician or um almost not dismissal of the idea but mm. this sort of mental barrier like why why 
why would you do why it now? Why would the physio care about me? Or like, you know, why yeah. should I do this now? And so I guess like I wanted to raise that because I think you're a really good model of excellence about the importance of building that network and giving energy to that network um, because it will come back in spades. And I think the other part then, which is also relevant to learning music again or the way you run or play or swim is like when you've been fairly accomplished at something in the past, how do you um, break down the barrier of comparing yourself now to what you were before? Because it's not just an age thing. And I've said this, I think I've said this to you before and when you've like had moments of like, I'm getting older. I can't do it like I want to do. But it's the same for me. It's like I can't run even now like I used to be able to do when mm. I was running marathons. Mm. So, like, I guess I just wonder how you break down that challenge. Um, well, going to the piano, just starting again and being given the challenge of a piece of music to, to learn, which I don't I, – I was given a piece – Debussy, the sunken cathedral, very appropriate for the COVID crisis. Our cathedral has sunken a bit, and I looked at the music and looked like spiders across the page, and I thought, I'll never learn to play this. But little bit by little bit, I have actually learned to play it. No, don't say I'm any Ashkenazi, but the incredibly difficult chords start to come together, and it starts to become music. And then going outside... You know, you never, you, you're not at 63 going to be what you were at 33 or 23, but you're still a strong version of yourself. And the, the, the flip side is to say, well, I'm not going to do it. And I just can't do that. I'm not going to say when I used mm. to be fit. That, that's just not an option. I will be fit, my dear father says. What's the point in exercising? You'll just die fit. Well, I want to die fit. I want to die the healthiest version of myself. Um, and who knows what will carry me off. Um, but it's, it's vitally important. I, I go to the swimming pool, not anymore because I like swimming, and unfortunately it's now closed so I don't meet my beautiful friends but I've got a friend there who's 20 years older than me so she's 83 and she'll say Julia my 400 butterfly time was slower than last year and I just look at her in bewilderment that she can even contemplate swimming 400 meters of butterfly I can't swim four strokes of butterfly anymore and people like that just inspire me that they're fit and healthy and they put importance on being fit and healthy, not on their times, not on the outcome or the race, or but for them it's about staying strong and staying So in other vital. words, you've re, over time, have been able to reframe your values and open up the conversation with yourself about not what you're achieving, but more Why? who, who, who you are becoming by going through yeah. the motions. And if there's a day where I think, oh, do I really want to go running or riding? And I think to myself, if I said that to myself every day, then I'm not going to be ever running or riding again. And yes, today maybe I'll go for a walk. But it's so important to me that as soon as I have that thought, I have absolutely no trouble in putting my shoes, bathers or helmet on or whatever activities that the day decides to be 
and going and doing it and as soon as I'm out there I just love but how it. do you know the difference between pushing yourself out the door to go and keep doing it versus to have to, to back off and go the other way and go well that's cool like not today then Oh, there's definitely days now where I say not today then. For me, that usually means I go and pull weeds out in the garden or I go for a walk with a friend or... But I still, I guess I still get the endorphin kick of pushing myself a little bit harder than that. But I do have to have rest days. And now, because I still work three days a week and work's very, very taxing and more taxing with this COVID crisis stress level added to it um i am more protective of myself on the days that i go to work than i probably would have even been two or three years ago i don't push myself hard on those days i will go and enjoy myself but i try not to make it one of my physically demanding days so i'm rejigging the way i look at and probably five years ago that wouldn't have even come into the equation i would have been able to do whatever i like and still back up a night at work um Mm. But I find now I can't. I have to have more energy in the tank for other things. Um, whether that's ageing or staging, I, I don't know. But um, yeah. So then through COVID, we've all talked about the importance of having a dream. We have learnt this from our previous experiences during adversity. So what is the, the dream that is keeping your fire in your belly going (laughs) um well definitely the dream is to still be fit and strong enough to go on another running tour whenever that is allowed to happen be that in Tassie or I've just missed going to see the Fagus again again I've never seen the Fagus um so so that in a in a smaller sense that is definitely one of my goals because I put a huge amount of value on the wonderful experience I've had being part of your running tours and the privilege of being able to be there um I'd still love to think I could go and do some cycle touring and I still absolutely love going to Derby to James's house there and fanging down the trails at Christmas time I did the new trail from St Helens out to the coast on my own which looking back when my bike actually broke about two weeks later and broke two spokes I wonder about my sanity but um, they're about to build new trails on the mountain and I've got to be able to still be mountain biking when those trails open that's just so 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 exciting to me Um, on a with a roof over my head I came up with this dream recently in conversation with my new piano teacher he said to me have I ever played a grand piano and I said "Mm, probably when I was a child on my grandfather's piano studio he was a piano teacher and I finished my lesson and I had this thought I thought I'm not going to be able to travel overseas for the next couple of years and I will probably retire in the next couple of years maybe maybe I could buy myself a baby grand piano so (laughs) the room's actually already been started to um, accommodate it for those people (laughs) where you should be getting a fairly 
great picture of my mum right now, but um, when she gets an idea in her head, there is zero stopping her. Probably <laughs> yeah, the room, like the room started her, within a week of getting the idea. Yeah, um, No, that was Hanny's fault because she said, Mum, you could glass in the porch there and put the piano in there when I told her about my idea to buy a piano. So within a week or within two weeks, because I ended up getting COVID tested last week when I had a cold, um, within two weeks, my lovely builder has been back and has already framed up the windows that are going to go into building glass in this porch. Who knows if the grand piano will happen, but that's sort of become a little bit of a carrot for those days of going it's to work. It's just important to have a dream. Have a dream. Yeah. and. And I feel I feel excited by that. Um, I'm lucky. I've got two grandchildren up the road. Um, I'm I'm not a great great little person person, <laughs> um, but I am enjoying watching them grow, and um, I look forward to the day when I can actually take Xander for a proper bike ride rather than just in a seat on the back of my bike, um, and that's that's fun. Um, so in other words, it's just having lots of carrots to look forward to, yeah. and I think something a goal to chase. Yeah, yeah, and to yeah. kind of as my ninety-six-year-old grand- grandmother would say to me on my father's side. But when I asked her what the secret was to longevity, one day she told me, "Just never stop moving. Never stop like, moving. Never stop." No. So it's probably like a perfect um, conclusion. So yeah, thanks for braving this with me <laughs> it's been <laughs> wonderful both nervous but um i'm really just so grateful that people can get to know you and my mom and and your voice not just mine through the book so thanks and thanks for writing the book honey Most. Mm-hmm.